Hi there, and welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, licensed clinical social worker and certified addictions counselor and certified Daring Way facilitator. I don't know why I needed to share all of that with you right now, but I did. So here we are. I am really excited to share this interview with you today. I am interviewing Felicia Less, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Her private practice is called In Hand at Heart Therapy. It's funny, when she and I first met, she was like, oh, God, our, our business names are similar. Do you think that's a problem? And I was like, nope, I'm cool. Like, it's, you know, head heart is certainly those are not uh trademarked words for Sarah Bueno exclusively to use. So I think that it's really kind of cool because at the time she came up with it, I think she was in California. So I think it's pretty cool that we resonate on the same frequency with with naming our businesses. So Felicia and I were just talking. And, and at the time that I did this interview, it's about a week after the Parkside shooting. And we didn't get into all of the specifics about that in particular and, and guns and whatnot. Side note, I had to look up Parkside to make sure that that was the name of the school. And at first I felt like an asshole for not knowing the name of the school, but then I realized it's just so commonplace that we're having these shootings now that it's like oh yeah another school shooting like surprise surprise and because it's not happening quite in our backyard we're not quite as attuned to it and that's just horrifying right so we started talking though about what we believe is part of the I guess salve to heal what's happening in our country right now and you know we'll get into talking about compassion but I really I just wanted to get on my soapbox about it because I feel like I've got you know a lot of people in my life who we we believe the same things you know we're all trying to fight for you know eradication of racism and more equality and all of these sorts of things but the way that we want to go about it is very different and you know, I've seen the bumper sticker, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I really balk at that because I'm not, I'm not outraged. I'm sad. And I've noted that for myself, I generally don't feel a lot of anger. I think I skip right to sad because in my experience, for me, anger is not a very vulnerable emotion. It's, it's a very kind of outward pointing, pointing finger sort of life. Anger and blame kind of go in the same camp for me. And I do tend to be a big blamer. So I'm not saying like, I'm so perfect. But anger for me feels like this more externalizing. And whenever I experience something that's really difficult, it usually just goes straight to being hurt. And that's how I feel about everything that's going on with our country right now. I'm just fucking sad. And it feels overwhelming. It feels impossible to fix. And the thing that I keep talking about with people is I'm not pissed and I'm not going to fight about it. I'm going to try to be compassionate and listen to what other people are saying and attempt to have an elevated conversation about these things. Because one of the problems that I feel like is happening is that we're talking about issues where there's a ton of nuance and there's a ton of stuff that's underlying these conversations that we're not talking about. And I think fear is what underlies everything. And I know as a therapist that if somebody's afraid, me yelling at them and telling them that they either shouldn't be afraid or they should feel differently that's not going to solve shit. I know that if somebody's afraid, I need to hold space for them to experience that fear and to 
find some sort of safety for, you know, whatever that looks like for them. And I truly believe that we've got to meet other people and start seeing them as, as humans instead of just saying like, oh, well, you know, if you voted for Trump, unfriend me. I find that really unhelpful. And I realize that that's not the popular opinion right now. I, I think I see a lot of people doing that all the time on Facebook. And I, I just don't, I don't think that that's going to help. I recently reread Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. And, and she talks about in that book, it's hard to hate people up close. And I think that's true for whatever part of the political spectrum that you're on. You know, I came from a very conservative upbringing. And so I feel like I have a first, you know, a front row seat to understanding why it is that especially conservative Christian, because that's what I was raised. And so I really, really think I can understand that perspective and understand why someone holds the beliefs that they do in, in that regard. And I, I feel like we have to be, everybody has to be able to do that, you know, and that's a call to increasing our capacity for empathy. And in order to be empathetic, we have to be vulnerable and we have to be compassionate. And those are the nuances that I feel like we're missing right now. And because people are terrified, everybody's got their armor up and everybody's ready to fight. And I just, sorry about the soapbox, but it's just, ugh, I am so tired of anger and outrage. And I think that there's action to be taken, but I don't have to take it from a place of hate and judgment. I can take it from a place of care and compassion and desire to change. So I will get off my soapbox now so you can listen to my interview with Felicia and enjoy her lovely voice as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Hello, Felicia. Hello. Hello. I am so excited to have you here. I am so excited to be here with you. Yay! So how about you start by telling the listeners who you are and what you do? My name is Felicia Less. I am an LMFT, licensed marriage and family therapist. And I moved to Chicago in December of 2016 for the adventure of a new city and also to be closer to family. And after a little bit of time cooling my jets, having to take the licensing exam here, I decided to shoot for the moon and start a private practice. So I've, yes, I've been in business for about seven months. And yeah, the journey has been absolutely incredible and very, very humbling. Right? Yeah. That's the piece that they don't really tell you about when you're in grad school. No, there, it, it's, <laughs> there was none of this in grad school. Yeah. None of it. It's funny because like, I, I knew we'd start diverting really quickly, but that just made me think <laughs> like, because my husband is currently in grad school for social work and that's what I did. And my experience of going to grad school was it was like, psychic surgery where I was being ripped open, everything was taken out, reorganized and put back in a different place. And I was trying to figure out like, who am I after this? And for my husband, it's actually kind of the opposite. Like he's experiencing freedom for the first time because he'd been stuck in corporate America for nearly 20 years. And now he's you know, actually tapping into the things that make his heart sing. And last night, oh my, this is so cute. We went out to dinner and he was like, I finally get what you mean when you talk about like being on the path and like knowing that you found your calling. He's like, I never understood that when you said it before, but I think I'm starting to get what that means. And I just wanted to cry because it's the cutest. 
That's a really big deal. I feel like right? for all of us, the experience of finding a calling that's in alignment with who we are and what we see for ourselves and how we want to be in the world, like I think that may be the biggest deal of all. Your husband's experience is similar to my experience. I had a corporate gig and my whole career path was incredibly winding before I became a therapist. And when I actually, I quit my corporate gig and then had a little bit of time where I was not floundering, but just kind of like, okay, what's next? And mm -hmm. I didn't really have a clear idea. I thought that I would stay in alignment with marketing, which is what I was doing. And then I actually had a really good friend sit with me and ask me four questions. What am I good at? What do I love? How can I make money? And how can I make a contribution? And so I sat with it probably for about 10 minutes and I'm like, okay, what am I good at? I'm good at being in relationship with people. Mm. What do I love? I love connecting with people and being of service and, you know, being that sensitive, loyal, dependable friend or person in my friends and family's lives. And mm -hmm. okay, so what does that mean? Being a therapist? Yes, I can make money. Mm -hmm. And yes, I can make a contribution. So it was... Once I was asked those questions, it was totally linear how everything unfolded. Wow. Yeah, I learned later that that's called ikigai. It's a Japanese situation. Yeah, I just learned <laughs> that at the beginning of this year. <laughs> I think you talked so, about that when we did our when our group too, didn't you? Uh, or maybe somebody else said it. I don't I don't even remember. I'm not really informed on it. I just found out that it had a name and, you know, the huh. principles underneath I'm fascinated with and there's so much to learn always. But yeah, ikigai. So is it like what I think I'm understanding is that basically when you're doing the things you're supposed to do, the red carpet just rolls out for you? Well, I mean, that was my experience and I yeah. think that's hope. But, you know, when you ask yourself those questions, you find out your passion and your mission and your mm -hmm. vocation and your profession. So like, Finding out where your profession and your passion intersect mm -hmm. and what lives in that space. Yeah. And as you're saying that, I feel like the generation behind us, the millennial generation, is getting that way quicker than our generation. I think we got it quicker than you know, the baby boomer generation, you know, I feel like we're finally as a culture starting to tap into like you have to love your work. We can no longer stay asleep and just go to these corporate jobs and check in and check out if that's not your passion, right? Like I know people that should be an accountant and they're passionate about being an accountant. <laughs> but if that's not your jam, like my husband was in PR and, you know, it was like fine. He was really good at it because he's a really good writer, but it wasn't making his heart sing. And now more than ever, I think young people have permission to explore that in a different way. I absolutely agree. And I also think that society is kind of forcing them to look in that direction for themselves because m millennials are saddled with more debt than any of us were. And, you know, in the gig economy that's being created out of that, I don't think anybody wants to have 14 jobs. So, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, no, <laughs> in order to like make ends meet. So yeah, I think millennials in particular are arriving at this quicker because they have to and yeah. because you know, there's space available for them to do it. Our yeah. culture is shifting in that direction because there's no guarantees now. You know, there's no jobs that exist for 50 years. And, 
you know, it's not like you could parse out your passion and have like your day job and then raising your family or whatever it is you choose to do outside of work. It's now with how hard everyone's working, it's like they have to intersect. Yeah. Hmm. So interesting. Commentary on society. (laughs) (laughs) Underscored with how much there is to learn every second. Right. Well, you know, it's funny that you perfectly segued into a question that I was going to ask. When I think about what makes a person a healer, I think that part of it is that you are called to the profession. Like the profession calls you. Basically, you're not just like one day like I'm going to be a therapist. I hear you, you know, consciously made that decision, but from a place of inner knowing rather than your brain telling you, well, yes, being a therapist is I'm going to make money. And <laughs> I don't know if you want to want to share a little bit more about that, like calling. I don't know if you if you consider it that. I do. And I think the way you articulate it is pretty perfect. I wrote an autobiography in the eighth grade for a class assignment. And uh, in my I want to read it. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't know if it still exists. But in addition to being a fighter pilot, I was going to be a therapist. Both. That's amazing. (laughs) Totally. Fantastic. you know, fighter pilot because of Top Gun, because of course I was. (laughs) But when I look back, I think that, you know, in the eighth grade, you have the idealism of youth that's not, that's completely unfettered by being self-conscious or, you know, all the things that we put in our way over time and money and resources Mm -hmm. and so on. So I turned away from it quickly thinking that I wasn't good enough or couldn't do it. And so I pursued many, many different things. And then what I arrived at when I decided to really pursue being a therapist as a profession was that I had the experience of coming full circle. And it did call to me because I was at a point in my life where I had done personal work, you know, to Mm -hmm. uncover my desires and, you know, to get out from under being self-conscious and, you know, all of the not good enough stuff, which P.S. is an ongoing thing. (laughs) P.S. never goes away. (laughs) No, no, it sure doesn't. But once I peeled it back more than ever before, I was like, this is something that I have to do in addition to wanting to do. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. Like I've had people ask, you know, how do you find the courage or, you know, whatever word they use, how do you find the courage to like do your own work and look at your stuff? And it's like, I don't have a choice. I have to. It's like a life or death thing pushing me towards inner knowing. Yeah. You know, and my experience with that is that I'm so grateful that this work requires me to constantly introspect and constantly Mm -hmm. acknowledge my own process and constantly work on my own growth because that's exactly what we are, you know, witnessing clients do. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what we're alongside clients when they do this work. And, you know, I have to walk the talk. Yes. I'm over here like, yes, queen. But there there are so many people who don't. And I've been finding myself in this space of judgment lately. And it's a reaction to my own desire for unlimited connection. Like, I think it's a lot of my attachment stuff is like, I don't want to not have the possibility to have a deep and meaningful relationship with every single person I am emotionally attracted to. And when I see people who aren't digging in 
I want to just judge them and be like, you're not doing it right. Mm. And it's been really painful to look at myself being an asshole and (laughs) to try to soften that and be like, okay, that's how you feel right now, but you don't have to act from that place. But it sucks. Absolutely. And I don't see you being an asshole about it. I just, you know, that passionate desire to want people to do more in order to connect with themselves and with you. I think that that's not assholish at all. <laughs> asshole you. <laughs> what it makes me think of is like the fear of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, emotional connection requires us to be so vulnerable. And, you know, there's different levels of it and how safe we feel. And, you know, there's so much at play with that. So what for you, because I have a really hard time articulating this because, as I said before, I feel like I don't have a choice. I feel like it kind of came out of the womb, not necessarily being comfortable being vulnerable, but because I'm an externalizer, everything has to get outside of me. And so I, in that way, I don't feel like I have a choice because I can't keep it in or I literally think I would die. But I don't know if that's true for you. Like, do you make a conscious choice to be vulnerable? And if so, what do you call upon inside of yourself to show up that way? I actually think it's similar to you with respect to the desire to connect with other people. For a long time in my life, I had such a huge fear of being vulnerable, you know, which is mm-hmm. how my related to my early experiences of relationships with my parents. You know, one parent was very stoic and one parent was very, you know, unpredictable and unstable. And so being vulnerable, I immediately made the connection that being vulnerable was being weak, you know, being penetrable and, you know, being affected by other people was not an option. And how sad what, well, how many of us have experienced that? I know, I know. It just makes me so sad. But what's ended up happening directly as a result of doing this work and my journey on my way to doing this work was, you know, discovering that being vulnerable is, is a superpower. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And, you know, it's cliche because it's so true, but being vulnerable is the most powerful thing that we can do. And, you know, in the language and the context of my own life, that gives me confidence, like how vulnerable I am gives me confidence and gives me certainty when it comes to doing the work and also connecting with people throughout my life. It's so awesome because what I hear from people who struggle to step into their vulnerability is the exact reason that you use for vulnerability being your superpower. It's amazing. (laughs) But I'm reading a lot of Pema Chodron right now, and she talks a lot about like embracing your fear and leaning into it rather than trying to run from it. And that sounds like exactly what you've done is you're like, okay, son of a bitch, like we're (laughs) going to work together and you are going to make my life better, which is so that's yes, that's yes. (laughs) You know, it's so interesting because it's like a minute to minute experience, right? Like it's not suddenly like I had a sunbeam shine upon me. I'm like, oh, I get it. It's not. Yeah, exactly. It's not like that at all. And like the backsliding and the progress and the so on, it is not linear and it is not fast. It's ongoing, arduous and ultimately really gratifying, but not a straight line at all. Right. And moving with this theme of vulnerability, you know, I think it is a superpower in our personal lives, but it's also a superpower in our therapeutic relationships. And I'm curious how you use vulnerability as a tool in therapy with your clients. You know, it's so interesting because outside of the room, 
how I use my vulnerability with people who aren't clients is I'm able to like talk about myself pretty easily and earnestly, you know, and like share my Mm -hmm. personal experience. And in the room with clients, clearly it's their space. So I don't use vulnerability in that way. And I'm always really aware of it. How it shows up with clients in making that therapeutic connection is being fully present, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in body, of course, but also like in spirit and in emotion. So my emotions kind of, you know, they're telegraphed on my face. I I don't. (laughs) You don't give good therapist face? (laughs) No. Oh, shit. Oh, but that's a superpower in and of itself, which I've been called out on many times. You know, like someone will say something shocking and like Uh I've practiced really hard not reacting when I know that my reaction is going to be counter to what that person wants. And I've had somebody say before, like, don't give me therapist face. You can react here. <laughs> I actually think I might have good therapist face to hear I was going to say, <laughs> I think you do. I think you do. <laughs> so there's the nonverbal kind of energetic way that vulnerability is transmitted, right? Like you can sit with someone and feel them being guarded, just like you can sit with someone and feel them being open. And I really try and stay conscious of that with each client. And, you know, mm-hmm. part of the fascinating bit of the work is the feeling that's transmitted and the feeling that's being received of vulnerability and openness and connection is different with every single client. Right. And I love that you were talking about, you know, you can feel when someone's closed and feel when someone's open. I think of that as a superpower, right, too, is like kind of sensing into the energy of what somebody is either holding or whatnot. How the fuck did we get that? Like, it's, I feel like there are some things that I just kind of innately have that when somebody asks me, because I teach, you know, sometimes I'll say something about something like this, you know, energy or knowing what someone's feeling and blah, blah, blah. And the students will be like, how do you do that? And I'm like, oh, I don't fucking know. Do do you have any knowledge of how you honed that skill? I do. Tell me. Ooh, ooh, tell me. It's twofold. As a kid, it was avoiding conflict. So avoiding Mm. conflict in my home life and also as a result of being really self-conscious, avoiding conflict with my peers. So, you know, when you're walking on the earth doing everything you can to fly under the radar, you get really Mm. sensitive to people's energy. And, you know, there's the imperceptible facial expressions that happen and a myriad of things. So that was how it began. And then actually in my very first internship, my very first first experience where I was putting my skills and my knowledge to work with clients. I was in an elder care facility with people Hmm. who were experiencing Alzheimer's and dementia. So, you know, they were all elders and they all had different levels of functioning and many of them were nonverbal. Many of them are bedridden. And I approached it like, okay, well, how is it that I can be with someone who's nonverbal? Like, what does that look like? Okay, sure, I can sit with them and daydream or do anything, you know, be not present emotionally or mentally. But what does presence look like? with someone who is unable to speak. And what I found pretty quickly with this one woman in particular, I'll never forget her. She had been nonverbal for years. And we sat together and we looked at each other and looked in each other's eyes. And I Mm -hmm. found that I was able to drop onto this emotional plane pretty effortlessly. And it was a physical sensation of dropping onto it. And, you know, it's a different level of consciousness. And I feel that that's, you know, a little psychedelic, but it wasn't. It was very deliberate and very real and very perceptible. And what ended up happening was that I could feel her and she could feel me. 
And at times it was overwhelming for me and at times it was overwhelming for her, but we established an emotional connection that didn't need words at all. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah, once I accessed it, it changed everything. So I'm aware of it all the time with clients. That's really incredible. And you were kind of forced into that situation because you just had to figure it out. You know, that's that's what I try to tell my students. Working with young therapists is a, is a passion of mine because I want to help people do the good work. You know, I feel like I can't see all of the clients. And I mean, maybe this is the narcissist in me, but I can't see all the clients myself. But if I can help make other therapists really great, then that's a good contribution. And I just keep telling them, like, you're not going to know anything when you graduate. And you just figure it out. You know, you just kind of feel your way through it. You make a ton of mistakes. You get a lot of really good supervision and you grow into it. Yes. That's another thing that I'm so grateful for in this work is that I'll constantly be growing into it no matter how long I do it. Constantly. Exactly. And, you know, I want to go to talking about the idea of being a healer because I think that situation that you just described with that woman who was nonverbal, holy shit, were you a vessel for healing for her? Because I can only imagine how isolated she must have felt. And then for you to be able to tap into her on a different level, that is healing. <sighs> yeah. Good, yeah, ta- good and- sigh. Good deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think about the idea of being a healer. I think about it often. And, you know, what's what's really significant to me is that healing is a co-created process. I have a lot of issues with, you know, the perspective of healing being one-sided. You know, I am a healer and I will heal you. That doesn't work for me. And my experience of healing experiences is that there we are I love it I love it there's vulnerability for you <laughs> it takes it takes both people it takes multiple people it's co-created so being a vessel yes I can I can mm-hmm. respect that and I can honor that but that you know like a vessel for what the other person and in, in whatever it is they need in that moment yeah I'm trying to think of I mean I guess you know Maybe that's a lot of people's fear because basically as I ask people to be a part of this podcast and and interview them, there's a lot of resistance to calling oneself a healer. And I think that just like you're talking about this idea that, oh, I will heal you and I have this magical power that I will then give to you and then you will be fine. There's a very narcissistic quality about that, obviously. And that's, I think, the antithesis of what a healer actually is, because I think you're exactly right that it's this co-creation of of healing and you know when when I did the interview with Audra we talked about how we are simultaneously healed by our clients as well and how it's interesting that like they'll never know they'll never really know because that's the nature of our relationship right and I tell my clients what an honor it is to walk them through their journey and they're like yeah yeah whatever like you know I'm just another person to you but when my therapist says it to me I get it and I respect it. And I'm like, yes, yes, thank you. Like this, this is what the co-creation of a healing relationship looks like is for both of you to be honored to be in that space together. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's humbling. And it's a privilege and a gift to be in the presence with someone doing their work, because of course, we're affected by it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I wish I could scream it from the rooftops just how much because it's pretty incredible 
I know. I have clients who are very interested in being a helper of some sort. And I think that, you know, being able to help someone truly from a place of giving and not not like a codependent place of giving, right? Because that's something that I don't know about you, but I have certainly fallen into this like, well, I'm going to give you this in order for me to get this in return. Like yeah. that sort of giving is not that's not healing. That's that's selfish, actually. But if I'm giving and helping from a place of I have an abundance and I want you to share in that abundance because I want us all to be happy, like that is healing no matter what you're doing, whether you're doing therapy or whether you're, you know, fucking like giving me a Diet Coke at McDonald's. Like <laughs> I, it's it's just all about the energy that you put into it. Right. And the compassion, the compassion that mm -hmm. you extend toward your fellow humans. I don't think there's anything more powerful than that. And also anything more palatable, you know, that you can like feel and pick up on and be a part of is the compassion that another person feels for you or the compassion that you feel for another person. Yeah. In our political climate, and I know that you and I are on the same political spectrum, so this is a, this is a safe space. <laughs> but in our political climate right now, I feel like, you know, there's so much division, right? And obviously it's like, you know, Republicans against Democrats, liberals against conservatives, blah, blah, blah. But I also have been feeling a lot of division between liberals in that if you're not angry, then you're not engaged in the change mm. process. And the way that I look at it is, I mean, compassion is what's going to fucking heal. Like a friend of mine, we actually, we were in show choir in middle school together. And so we're Facebook friends and she had posted something about outlawing automatic rifles and she lives in the South. So for her, that was a really courageous act. So she posted that. And then I read, there was like 54 comments and I was like, oh shit, this is going to piss me off. You know, like to start <laughs> reading about these dicks who are just like, I'll keep my guns, blah, blah, blah. But I, I read through it, through the thread, and the thoughtfulness and the openness to tolerate difference of opinion in that thread made me want to cry because it was such a great example of because I can create a space for compassion to understand your beliefs and why they might be different. We can continue this conversation in a very respectful manner and we might not necessarily completely change each other's opinions but at the end of the thread what everybody agreed on is everyone's afraid everyone is afraid and that needs compassion to heal fear we're not going to heal wow. fear with more hate right no wow i think a lot about how we're communicating with each other in our online spaces and like Ugh. you know behind the walls of not being face to face or voice to voice I, I think about that a lot and we all see how it unfolds you know much in the opposite way of people are shitty and you know they troll and like say things to get a reaction in a negative way and what I'm feeling more and more, you know, and of course, because we've been involved with this division for a really long time and like mm -hmm. acutely for the last year is exactly what you're saying is that I think all any of us really, really want is just to be seen and heard. And we're all figuring out how to do that amongst all of these divisions. Right. That was my point. You know, they started talking about, you know, it's a mental health issue and over prescription and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, if I can just weigh in from the mental health perspective of, of being a provider, it's it has nothing to do with over prescribing. I mean, that's an addiction issue and all kinds of other stuff. But people who feel seen and heard don't kill people, mm. period. 
Yeah. So what do we need to do to create a space where more people have the opportunity to be seen, heard, and loved? Oh, that's the question. And I, I so, so badly want to have an immediate answer for it. That's what I said. Like, I know how to do that one-on-one. I know how yep. to do that in small group. I don't know how to do that for the world. And just thinking about, you know, I've asked you to be on this podcast to talk about yourself being a wounded healer, but fuck, like we're, we're getting into the space. We're just talking about the wounding of the collective soul of this nation, And I think it's coming to the surface now where it's been hidden for so long and the pain that is surfacing. That's why all these things are crazy shit is happening. Everyone's in so much pain. It's true. It's true. The way I think about it is because we're all a part of a collective, the work that we do together on a one-on-one basis or on a small group basis does matter. And it matters in a really big way. I think that, you know, so many of us want to initiate big change for many people and how it works is on a grassroots level. So, Mm -hmm. you know, grassroots and community organizing, of course, but when you translate that into therapeutic work, grassroots is one-on-one and small group. So it, it matters and it matters big. Yeah. Have you had the experience of sitting with any clients who are grappling with the, the political climate? I have. I have one client who is not from this country originally, Mm. and she is from a place where there is a ton of political unrest Mm. and war and, you know, many terrible things have been happening acutely for the past five years or so. And her experience of being here is, you know, on the surface, everything's fine. You know, people are living their lives. They're doing their things. There's the American dream you know, in quotes that still appears to be intact. And yeah. her experience <laughs> is, <laughs> well, yeah. is yeah. just under the surface, there's this undercurrent of unrest that's so similar to her own experiences, you know, and what's the conversation? How, how? Mm. And, you know, I, I have other clients who are at odds with their friends and family. Mm. I'm yes. at odds with my friends and family. Yes. So there's a particular resonance in in those conversations. But yeah, people are definitely talking about it and it definitely comes up because we're having to like deeply consider our place in society and also mm-hmm. with respect to privilege and how we think about ourselves in a privileged way or I think more specifically how we don't think about ourselves with privilege. That is a conversation that people are having it, people are thinking mm-hmm. about it, and it's powerful and, you know, necessary, obviously. Yeah. And I think, you know, this kind of encapsulates part of the wounded healer journey, right, is that your client is struggling with the exact same thing that you're struggling with in I mean, not exactly, obviously, from a different country, but the root of the problem is the same, is the is the unrest in this country. And you are not healed from it. And, you know, so she's certainly not healed from it, but you're walking this journey together. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, wounded healer, that term brings up a lot. And I think that we all have wounds and they all look different, but generally they're all pretty much the same. And Mm -hmm. I think that the wounds that we experience as, you know, therapists gives us access to the resonance that we can experience with our clients. Mm -hmm. You know, I think part of our responsibility and part of the work is how to keep those wounds on our side of the room, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and how to hold the space for the client's experience and their wounding. Yeah. And, you know, the resonance that happens as a result of that is powerful and beautiful. I love the word resonance and resonant. You know, I think it intersects my musical self and and also just like what I believe about energy. And I think one one of the reasons I was so, you know, emotionally attracted to you when I met you, I could feel like we had a similar vibration. I mean, for lack of a better term, <laughs> it was very, very clear to me, A, that you're like doing your work and and B, we have a very, we got vibes, girl. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't wait to be in your orbit because of how I felt you. Mm-hmm. I couldn't wait. It was so exciting to meet you and everything since has been absolutely incredible. Samesies. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I talked a little bit about this with Audra's interview, but, you know, I think we can just share a little bit more if you're comfortable. So Felicia and then Audra, who was in my first interview, were in a therapist process and consultation group. And there is, in my mind, and and people who are listening who are not therapists are like, you guys are fucking nerds. In in my mind, there is nothing cooler than being with a group of therapists who are bawling their eyes out, digging into their deep shit and holding space for one another. It is magic shit, people. Magic shit. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's hard to articulate the experience of being in that kind of group. And Mm -hmm. it's the resonance. It's like I lose my words when I think about it because it was so powerful. And I'm pretty verbose. But (laughs) you imagine, you know, sitting in the same room with people that come from all different walks of life and experiences, but have this common thing of, you know, being clinicians and having this common understanding of how much ourselves impact our work mm-hmm. and also making an agreement with each other to be courageous, to be upfront and to be available, like fully, fully present as much as we possibly can. It's nerd shit. It's amazing. Right. It's <laughs> But one of the things that that does for me, too, I try to be as I guess, professionally vulnerable with my clients as I can, because I think there's a lot of validation in letting your clients know that you're, you can struggle too. And it's so easy to say that to clients, but really hard to forget when I'm in that moment of struggle. And I think, oh, Audra's probably got her shit together. And, you know, Felicia is doing this great. And like, you know, my therapist definitely doesn't struggle because she's been doing this for a long time. And when we're in that space together and somebody else is doing their work and I'm watching them be in pain, I just I feel nothing but awe and grace and hope and connection. There's no judgment. There's no negativity. And it's just so hard to give that to ourselves. It is. We're so conditioned to avoid struggle. And we're so conditioned to believe that struggle is something that is unacceptable and intolerable. When Mm -hmm. in fact, you know, the struggles that we have in common and the struggles that we share are the things that unite us the most. Right. We are all strength and struggle at the same time, right? As cheesy as that sounds. (laughs) It's so true. Right? So true. Well, you know, we're kind of reaching the end of the hour here. Is there anything that you would want to share that you feel like your clients would be surprised to know about you? Well, let's see. (laughs) Mm. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> I did a 500 mile hike in 2016. <gasps> I did the, I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is you walk across the country of Spain. Yes. And I've heard of this. Yeah, I, I did it. You know, there are many different routes to take. And I took the one that was most is most commonly traveled because I had never done anything like that before in my life. And yeah, I think that that can be pretty surprising. And, you know, I, I want to talk all the time about the transformative effect it had on me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about it. Tell me. Well, it's interesting because, you know, to do something that's so physical, the spiritual process is built in. You know, it's to to walk 15 to 20 miles a day. I experienced this connection of body and mind that I didn't set out to experience. You know, what I set out to experience was to be unapologetic. Like, okay, here I am, you know, in this body, in this country, doing this thing, and I'm not going to apologize for it because I've apologized enough for my body, for my life choices, for all the things that I've done. So here I am, I'm going to do this thing and I'm just going to do it. Wow. I just got chills. Seriously, I did. And what ended up happening was I started to refer to myself and my body as us and we. And I had been at odds with my body and my body has been an adversary my whole life. And my experience of myself on this walk was that I asked my body to do all of these things. And it was like, okay, okay, friend. What do you need us to do? We're here for you. And I was actually talking to Audra about this, and she articulated that she had an experience where she began to, you know, like my body takes care of me and I take care of my body. So that's the us and the me. When she mentioned that, it, I, I still think about it. It gave me incredible chills because it articulated what I had arrived at but didn't yet have the words for. So taking this journey, I definitely had this experience of myself and my body that I had never had before, which makes it so I'm walking on the planet in a different way. But holy shit, I am going to steal that and like try to incorporate that because I, I mean, I think so many of us are at odds with our bodies and in, in one way or another, we have different stories about it, but you know, similar struggle. And, and you're so right. Like, I think I mistreat my body and then I'm like, well, but you need to fucking go to the gym now and you need to not be sick. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, it's like I've I've experienced this journey of punishment and reward, punishment and Mm. reward, punishment and reward. And it's lopsided. There's much more punishment in how I think about my body and how I treat my body. And then I was in a situation where I was asking it to do things that I had never asked it to do. And despite all the punishment and hating it, it was like, I love you. Okay. Mm. Wow. That's so awesome. I still get emotional thinking about it. It's a really big deal. Yeah. And I actually, I heard somebody else talk about it in a similar way about the spiritual part of it, just kind of organically shifting. And she, I think, I can't, I can't remember. It's so funny. Like, I, I feel like I have such deep conversations with everyone that I meet that I'm like, I don't know who the fuck that was that I was talking to, but they said something amazing and I will never forget it. But I think she was talking about like, having been raised Catholic and then doing this walk and understanding spirituality in a totally different transformative way. Because the Santiago is the saint of what? Like what? Like what's the purpose of the walk? You know, I'm totally revealing myself as not a religious person and definitely not a Catholic. So Santiago is the Spanish word for St. James. St. James, right. My understanding is that the walk originated somewhere in the 1200s to see the remains of the saint. And Hmm. the walk evolved over time, you know, to, to fit the, well, the marketing platform of the Catholic Church. But it's still 
always and continues to have its underpinnings in Catholic and Christian faith. That's the language that surrounds this hike. And because I didn't have that language starting out, the way I thought about the spiritual piece of it was just something that was really internal. And that's actually how I experienced it. But there were many Mm -hmm. people who were doing the walk, making a sacrifice to God. You know, in gratitude for the things that they've experienced in their life, they were doing this Mm -hmm. walk to make a sacrifice. And I know that there are a myriad of other reasons, religious and otherwise, why people do it. But the idea of someone sacrificing, you know, doing this physically arduous thing as a sacrifice to show Mm -hmm. gratitude, that floored me. Well, and being witness to that, I think, is spiritually challenging in a positive way, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, you just the nature of the walk taking six weeks or six or seven, depending. And, hmm. you know, some people go for portions rather than doing all 500 miles. But the majority of people that did the whole walk were in a place in tr- of transition in their lives, you know, by virtue hmm. of being able to take that much time off. But hmm. imagine the spiritual conversations that happen around transition. You know, who am I? What have I done? Where am I going? What do I want? This is a reset. This is, you know, an ending. This is a beginning. So I met people from all over the world that were in a similar space as me. And it was, you know, it was incredible. You talk about resonance with other humans and the language barriers didn't matter. Mm. That was amazing. Well, again, back to your nonverbal client and just feeling into connection and energy. Exactly. Oh my God, I could talk about this forever. (laughs) (laughs) I really could. I feel like this has been such a great conversation, but I almost feel like we need to do another. So maybe that's what we do. Yeah, I'm available to you anytime. I love this and I love you. So I'm here here for it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, I I think we should. But as far as today goes, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you'd like to share? We covered so much ground, Sarah. I think I'm good. I'm good. I'm spent. (laughs) Not spent. Actually, like totally fulfilled. Right. Yeah. I feel wonderful. Yay. Well, thank you so, 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 so much for being a part of this. And I cannot wait to share it with the world. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Felicia for being my guest today. I really hope you all enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I loved conducting it. I also wanted to thank Andrea Klunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing our podcast, Liam O'Donnell for taking the photo for the album art, and Ben Mueller for our theme music. For more information on Felicia, you can visit my website at headhearttherapy.com slash conversations dash with dash a dash wounded dash healer. Ooh, that's a lot of dashes. There's probably a better way to say that, but that's the URL for now. So thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate you listening and till next time. Mm-hmm.